Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 151. A uh, special thank you to Robert for being on the show last week. So, a lot of stuff to get to, including the episode itself, obviously. Wanted to let everybody know that, uh, as I mentioned last week, there is a survey available at morethanonelesson.com. There's only four or five questions. Um, it'll take maybe 30 seconds to fill out. But if you go to morethanonelesson.com and click on the button that says survey, uh, I would really appreciate it. It just kind of lets me know uh, where to take the the show in the coming year. Um, you know, it asks, like, who's your favorite guest? What is your favorite mini-sode? Um, which episodes did you respond to? Um, it's, it's very helpful for me. So uh, please do that. And then lastly, uh, yeah, I think we'll leave it at that. Um, so uh, we're going to be talking about Tom McCarthy's spotlight today, but in order to, there's only one way we can do that, and that is to invite in my favorite co-host of the three. His name is Josh Long. Josh. Hi. How you doing? Good. Now, you, you say that to all the co-hosts, don't you? I, I don't say it to Robert, because I don't want him to feel good. Oh, okay. He's at his best when he's nervous. Um, <laughs> oh, good. Keep so, him down. When he's got something to prove, you know, <laughs> like, a, like a young uh, Air Force pilot, you know? He's got everything to prove. There you go. So, uh, now listeners have been hearing you for the last several months with these uh, minisodes. They have been. And as, as we mentioned in those minisodes, uh, you know, we, uh, we recorded them back in October, uh, and I think early November, I don't remember exactly, but, uh, but yeah, so people know that we recorded them way in advance, but they're still, they've still been hearing you, mm -hmm. but in fact, you have been out of town for, for about two months. I have. You've been working, uh, and then there was the holidays mm -hmm. and then, uh, long time away from LA. Yes. So, uh, without going into too much detail, what, what, what were you doing? What's, what's going on here? Why were you gone for so long? Uh, most of the time I was gone, I was working on a, a film in Texas and a, uh, uh, feature. A, okay. eh, it's kind of a drama, I guess, uh, coming of age drama type thing. And, uh, yeah, I've been getting a lot of work in Texas and I, I enjoy visiting Texas. So it was That's fun to be back thing. there and everything. Um, <laughs> no offense to listeners from Texas, but you should probably move. Uh, I've been to Texas. Didn't care for it. I did go in June to, uh, El Paso. Oh, it was very hot and very humid. I went for a mission trip, uh, cause it's right across Morez. But uh, I'm not crazy about El Paso myself, but I've only been there once. So Can't if you're from El Paso, don't don't hate me. I just I haven't spent a whole lot of time there. If you're from El Paso, just move, move to Austin. <laughs> all right. It's like the hip. It's the hip place in Texas. Austin's right? Austin's pretty cool. Um, I'm joking, of course. Uh, you know, every state in the union is wonderful. Hang on. Ohio's not. Is it not? <laughs> that's where uh, that's where uh, Cleveland is. Yeah. I've never been to Cleveland. <laughs> I, I assume it's really great. I hear that it rocks. I have heard that. I don't remember where. Um, so uh, what was I, what on earth was I saying? Oh yeah. Uh, so one thing that I find very interesting, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna encourage you for a moment here, Josh. So just oh. get ready. I will uh -oh. slap you back down in a moment. Okay. Good. Good. But uh, it must feel pretty good that people are willing to fly you to Texas. Undoubtedly, there are people in Texas. That could probably do your job, 
but in you the same so but it speaks it speaks well of your abilities that they are willing to fly you out that they're willing to spend the money you yeah know? yeah um, it's a thing that i that i have that, that i tell jen uh, quite a bit that there are people that were willing to fly her to new zealand and yeah. switzerland and costa yeah. rica you know it's just they have photographers there right but none of them are as good <laughs> as jenny smith and yeah. there are no dps uh i'm sorry no ad's or dps actually they just don't they just <laughs> didn't know uh that are as good as josh long so that would be a weird position for me to just step up into yeah. and be like you know what uh i can i, I can be the dp for the they, rest of the movie like you poison the dp and it's like <laughs> oh we need one but oh we just don't have the time you know That's, what i i could take a crack at it and then it turns into the hustler where you're just <laughs> doing such amazing shots that, that is a uh a, a, a sadly apt uh joke because we actually lost our dp that's halfway right. through the movie that's right you did mention that oops sorry yep. um that's right we don't have to go in, into that too much indeed but, but she's so, doing well i hope she's yeah as do i as do i um but yeah it's it's uh and it's this is maybe something of a personal question we don't have to go too far into it but you know you are a writer and director but you get a lot of your you get a lot of your money from being an assistant director mm-hmm and you've and not only have you gotten better at that but you've also become somewhat well known i mean maybe not well known but people know you and they know that you can be counted on mm-hmm. is that something that you are that you get excited about or is it just like this is all well and good but this is not what i want to be doing or is it a combination of the two i think it's a combination of the two because there's some ways that it's like a stepping stone to some of those other things Mm -hmm. i I think it definitely has made me a better director in the Mm. in the practical sense of it i think there's a lot of people who are excited about the idea of being in charge of an artistic project and directing it, but they don't know how to yeah. do that when it really, when the rubber meets the road. And I've, I've worked with a lot of people who are first time directors and you see them making a lot of the same mistakes and things like that. So, um, what's one of the big mistakes that they make? Um, that's prob- common, probably the biggest one. And this is, it's general, but it's just not enough planning. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you don't think about the fact that once you're there on the, on the ground, you're trying to get a whole lot of stuff done in a whole, in a little bit of time. If you're, if you've got like star Wars money, then you probably don't have so much to worry about. And you can right. be like, yeah, we're going to spend five days shooting one scene. That's one page long. Yeah. You can get away with something like that. But most people who are first time directors, you're doing something that you really need to know how to work within a budget. And the best way to do that well is a lot of planning. Yeah. It's, I do know from friends that are either in a directorial position or in your position that there's often a great deal of optimism of how much they can get accomplished in mm-hmm. one day. Yeah. They just assume like, well, I mean, it's one, it's one scene in a movie. <laughs> one scene is 45 seconds. How surely, hard can it be? Surely it yeah. must, maybe it'll take three times that <laughs> to, to shoot it, but surely not much, much longer. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's uh, you're, you're seeing sort of behind the curtain for good or ill. Mm-hmm. Um, so, We'll go ahead and get into the the topic now, um, and we're it's entirely possible, and I mean entirely possible. W- you and I will be talking about this exact movie again <laughs> in a few weeks, just as we did last year with Birdman. Yep, but didn't expect to. Uh, no, this time around, I'm kind of expecting it. We are talking so? about Tom McCarthy's Spotlight, which has been nominated for a number of Oscars: uh, Best Director. Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Mark Ruffalo, Best Supporting Actress for Rachel McAdams, Original Screenplay and Editing. Uh, 
Spotlight has been winning a lot of critics awards for picture. Mad Max has been taking director and, you know, a number of, of technical awards, but picture tends to go to spotlight and it, it does fit the mold certainly mm-hmm. better than, yeah. uh, than Mad Max. If you would ask me a few weeks ago, well, but if there was a third one that I might suggest could get be in the running, what would it be? I would have said Carol, which was then not nominated for director or picture. So I feel mm-hmm. like it is between Mad Max and Spotlight. Maybe there will be the Revenant, but with the amount of support for Big uh, for Birdman last year, maybe they won't throw anything in your E2's way except for a bunch of nominations. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if. I mean, I think I I think he's got a good shot at the. Uh, I say he as if Inyaritu gets the 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 Oscar for this, but for for cinematography, I feel like. It's got a good That's shot gonna at that one. That's going to be tough, too, because that would be the third year in a row that Emmanuel Lebesky I know. But it's, at the same time, it's like, who else is... I'm not really seeing anybody else matching that. Match... Well, I mean, Mad Max is assaultingly beautiful. Yes. Um, and then it's also possible... I don't think this is going to happen, but Roger Deakins has never won an Oscar. And he's nominated for Sicario. That's right. I think they just keep nominating him because they're like, he, he needs to get one eventually. The, the, and they nominate him for great work. Sicario oh yeah. does look great. That's, he always does great work. But it's, it's funny because these are movies that probably would not be nominated for many things otherwise. Because yeah. wasn't it like... Uh, Prisoners was nominated. Prisoners and yeah. that, not for, for anything one. else. Yeah. yeah. Um, was it up for screenplay? It might have been up for screenplay, but I don't know. Maybe. Um, yeah, so it... One of the things that I actually I get excited about uh, as far as this year's Academy Awards is how unpredictable it is in almost every category. Almost. Mm. Stallone is probably going to win Supporting Actor. It's almost guaranteed. Um, George Miller is almost guaranteed director as well. But at the same time, maybe they maybe the Academy doesn't want to split it up. Maybe they want to give director and picture to the same person. It's hard to say. Maybe. And if that's the case, I can't imagine Tom McCarthy winning Best Director yeah, that's the thing. in the face of Inuritu or George Miller. Yeah, I can't see that happening. And I, as as fun as it might be, I can't see Mad Max getting picture. I feel like that's just too... It'd be too much to ask. Yeah. Like, hey, it got a bunch of... It got a lot of support as far as nominations. Way more than anybody thought it was going to and good for the Academy. But it's almost like, all right, every, it's, I feel this way sort of about this whole Donald Trump thing. And I apologize <laughs> if you... If, if Listeners, if you uh, are, are fans of Donald Trump as a politician. But you just kind of feel like, okay, this was all well and good. We, we, f- we flirted with this weird idea and, you know, Donald Trump is still doing very well in the polls. And it's like, okay, but it's, it's election time now. <laughs> so let's all go with what we were going to do anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And, but when you think about it, the Revenant is also kind of an odd film for a best picture. It's a, it's a little bit more conventional, but the way it is shot and the way it's, I guess in a way it's sort of like the pianist, except the pianist had, the Holocaust thing behind it. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just such a strange year. I think it's between those three, probably. Uh, probably. What are the other ones that are even nominated? Are we getting room? too far off track? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Maybe. Uh, and that's that's probably a conversation for a few weeks from now. No matter that's what true. we're talking about. That's true. But yeah. So it's it's a very strange thing. And I should take the take the time before we jump into this. Uh, so this so Spotlight was directed by Tom McCarthy. Uh, years ago, we did an episode about the films of Tom McCarthy. We mm-hmm. talked about The Station Agent, 
The Visitor, and Win Win. Now, between those movies and Spotlight, he did direct a film called The Cobbler, which is an absolute mess, and I have no idea why anybody made it. I didn't know he made that movie. He sure did. Really? Uh, and I'm not sure why. I don't know if he wrote it. Um, I, everything about it seems almost like a director for hire kind of thing. Hmm. Um, I can't, that movie is a, is a, a mystery to me and to so many others. Hmm. It's astonishingly bad and bad in ways that are almost immoral. <laughs> uh, there's something that would qualify as like a, an attempted rape, um, except Oof. not in the way we think, you know, it's cause he, Adam Sandler's character like puts on people's shoes and then he looks like them. So oh. he puts on the shoes of this guy who is uh, like very attractive and is married to a very attractive woman's, woman. So he puts on the guy's shoes and then she thinks it's her husband, takes him home and they're going to, and she's like going to do it. And Adam Sandler is going to do it. And then he realizes, oh shoot, if I take my shoes off, she'll realize I'm not him. I guess I better not have sex with this woman under false pretenses. <laughs> like it's very creepy. Um mm. So yeah, he did make that, and that is uh, unfortunate. Hmm. But he then he made Spotlight, and yeah. I'm not sure uh, how one goes from one to the other. But uh, I was a I'm a big fan of Spotlight. It's in my top ten of the year. Uh, I saw it probably a couple months ago, and then I just watched it yesterday. I think I I think I like it more than you. Um, and having heard some of your objections, which we will in a moment. Uh, I do not, because you and I compared the film to Concussion in some of our objections. Mm -hmm. Having watched it again, I think it does a much better job uh, than Concussion at a number of things. But we'll get to that in a moment. So I probably still agree with that. Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's hard not to. Um, someday we'll do an upset about Concussion. We're not going to do that. Um, in spite of the fact that the main character is himself a church-going man, yeah. and a lot of people and a lot of Christian websites have latched onto that. It's like, that's fine. Good for you. Got to make a better movie next time. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, Spotlight is about the, the Catholic Church priest child abuse scandal of the early 2000s. Now, of course, it had been going on for a long time, mm -hmm. but it only came to light uh, into the spotlight, one could say, hey. uh, in 2002. And I, I, and it's so interesting. I have such a, a vivid memory of where I was when I first heard all of this. Hmm. I was in a cab in Chicago going from one place to another. The radio was on and I heard just people, I just heard outrage on the radio <laughs> and people saying they have been doing this for years. It has affected pretty much every state, major cities, other countries and no one has got has gotten in, into any legal trouble for it the catholic church knows all this stuff and as i was hearing i was like wow that's pretty intense and that's that's kind of the that's kind of all i thought about it but then just the fact of this has permeated culture hmm. to the point that it, it has regularly become something of a punchline yeah um but uh but i'm glad that i'm glad that the movie was made i'm for a number of reasons because it's it's always nice to go back and see because it is first and foremost a journalistic film. It's not mm -hmm. just a story about the cover up, it's a story about the uncovering of it. Yeah. And I'd say it's almost not a story movie about the cover up. It's it's it, it, it it's, requires the cover up as the central point of the journalism part of the movie, but mm -hmm. as they're 
as they are discovering things, that's when the details of the, it's almost like reservoir dogs where you never actually see the diamond heist. <laughs> yeah. But you will see sometimes flashbacks, not that you see them in spotlight, but you'll see flashbacks. You'll hear people talk about stuff. And only then it's like, okay, I have a pretty clear idea now. Mm-hmm. And so as the characters are looking through like this, this directory and they realize that, Oh, this term sick leave is code. This is code for a priest did something he's not supposed to do. He is being taken out of commission for a while. And when they, and as they go through and realize just how often the term sick leave comes up, mm-hmm. There's a, obviously there's the journalistic aspect, but you can then see the extent of the cover up at that point. So, um, you're not seeing anybody, you are admittedly, you're not seeing anybody say, cover it up. This isn't, uh, we're watching all the president's men. We're not watching Nixon. (laughs) Yeah. You know? So, um, even though all the president's men is a better film for a number of reasons, which I'll get to in a moment. But, um, so yeah, I was, uh. I was very happy that they that that the movie was made, even though so many of us seem to know the details. Sometimes it's nice to know just how much work went into all of us knowing this now. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's kind of my general response. There's a lot of individual things that I could talk about, and I and I will in a moment. But um, as I said, I like it more than you do, but you didn't dislike it. Yeah. Um, so what what was your general thought about it, either going in or or coming out of it? I think uh, going in, I was kind of curious to see what they would do with that because as far as the just the the, the scandal with the priests, it's it it feels like covered ground a little bit mm-hmm. because it's and honestly because of the the story that broke because right. of the story that these people broke it's become such a uh, uh, such a thing that we just kind of like goes hand in hand with our, our ideas of the Catholic church. So part of me was a little skeptical, I think thinking like, well, we already know all of this information. And sometimes, sometimes a a movie can rub me the wrong way when it feels like it's trying to stick it to the man, Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that all of culture, it's in like the safest way possible. And like the way that all of culture agrees with them. And it's like, okay, well, you're not really, you're not really being brave. Um, but I don't think that's what this movie was trying to do. I, right. I thought this movie was trying to, so once I saw it coming out of it, I felt like it was just kind of exploring this, uh, the people, I don't know, searching and finding this story. And, uh, it's definitely, it definitely can't not be about, uh, institutionalized evil sure. or institutionalized, uh, institutional allowance of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think, I think some of that rubs me the wrong way. Not, not, uh, not just the idea of that, but I feel like people tend to feel like when, when they thought, think of institutions doing things like that, it's all, it always seems to be like the church. Right. Or, uh, or, it seems like it's the church or big business. It's one of those two. Yeah. And this is not the fault of the movie at all, but I think it can play on people's ideas that these are the kind of institutions that need to be brought down. Mm -hmm. And we need more people like these journalists who will bring those institutions down. So again, that's not what the movie's about. I don't think that's what what the movie's trying to say, but I think... 
I, I do think the filmmakers know in the back of their minds this is the way a lot of people feel and, and a lot of people will respond to it because of that. And I do think uh, – I think that it gives that a voice in some of these journalists but not all of them. Mm-hmm. Some of them are able to stay pretty cool-headed while others, like for example Mark Ruffalo's character, does seem – there's outrage there as there should be. Um, but he does seem to have a certain degree of uh, – he seems to take a certain degree of pleasure in what he is doing mm-hmm, and yeah. not simply because we're breaking a big story, which there's plenty there, mm-hmm. but, um, but just, yeah, I'm going to stick it to the man. And, and when we see that and we don't see it much, you know, we see mostly the outrage and again, it's understandable, but, um, but when we see it, I don't think it's painted well. I don't think, I think it makes his character look worse than if he were, than Liev Schreiber's character who mm-hmm. simply, getting to the truth in as dispassionate a way as he can mm-hmm. um, to the point where we even have a, a scene where Mark Ruffalo is yelling at Michael Keaton. Both men are equally invested in this. Both men are equally angry, but uh, Mark Ruffalo's personal investment in bringing things down and, and, and really sticking it to, uh, these guys. And again, I understand, like we all want to see justice be done, but it does need to be a certain type of dispassionate justice. And I think that's one of, that's one of the things me about this, as opposed to a movie like all the president's men, Mm -hmm. you know, I can understand why Woodward and Bernstein might be angry, except they're not, it doesn't really affect them that much. Whereas this one thing that I do like is that, um, so, over Battleship Pretension, we've been toying with this series of podcasts for a very long time where we will pick one episode. We'll, we'll have an episode be about one major American city and then look at how movies have portrayed it. Hmm. And a big one would be Boston. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got The Departed. You've got Mystic River. Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting. Gone Baby Gone. Um there, there's a number of them. It doesn't make uh, the town, it doesn't make it look very good. But, and you know what? Even though those are all crime, you know, crime dramas and thrillers and stuff like that, I would also include Spotlight. Oh, definitely. Because the same mentality is there. It's this close, I, even a character in the film says it. He says, you know, this is actually still kind of a small town. It's yeah. huge, but it has that small town mentality. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I don't know. It's just, uh, Aside from just being about this case and the and just the the fact of it, it is also about how every single person in that office is affected personally as a function of either their faith or maybe they know somebody who could have potentially gotten hurt or whatever it is. Um, and so it is on top of being a portrait of the crime, it is also a portrait of how these people can't be as objective as they would probably like to be as journalists and so and it doesn't totally condemn their their lack of objectivity but i don't think it champions it either i think the film the the when the characters are at their most heroic is when they are simply pressing on and not not letting themselves get too personally invested in it. Mm-hmm. But again, those scenes where they're personally invested, it's nice. It's nice to see that they care yeah. about this. And again, you know, it's, uh, when it comes right down to it, nobody got 
killed because of water Watergate, whereas mm-hmm. these are children being horribly victimized. So it's also you need somebody to sort of verbalize your, your right. rage as you watch it. And weren't there some of them that had like committed suicide later oh, on? Oh yes, undoubtedly. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, so yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it's a very different type of thing, and one that probably should bring up uh, probably should bring up certain questions about the institution of the church, which now speaks to this other thing. Neither you nor I were raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. We are, however, both married to uh, nice (laughs) Irish Catholic girls. Um, And so... Lapsed uh, Catholics, technically. I guess technically, yes, (laughs) though they still have uh, embraced certain certain ideas. Um, And so it is very interesting to me because, you know... If I say the church to you, or if you were to say it to me, my instinct, and I, I, sorry, I won't speak for you. My instinct is when someone says the church, I think of the body of believers. Yeah. When someone says the church to a Catholic, in the in this film at least, it can, it can only be one thing. Yeah. It is the Catholic Church, which is an institution. It yeah. is well organized. It is a well oiled machine. It is self sustaining. Mm-hmm. You know. And so that is a thing that I, I, as I was planning this episode, I was sort of thinking maybe we should bring somebody in who was raised in a certain environment. But yeah. uh, at the same time, I just thought like, that it's, I don't think we need that. But it is, that is another aspect of the culture of Boston, but also the culture of a very specific kind of Catholicism that yeah. I, that I think is interesting. And I don't, I don't want to speak ill of, of Catholics, uh, you know, any that might be listening, but in the world of this film, it is all very, uh, not oppressive, but ever present. One could say mm-hmm. the, the church. So, uh, sorry, I don't remember even really what we were getting to there. I guess we're just sticking with general thoughts. Well, we were talking about, yeah, yeah. The, the idea of the institution. Um, and I think, I think it's interesting the way it, uh, it, it raises some interesting things to think about in terms of what, uh, what the Catholic Church is and is as an institution, and why this, what sort of mindset allows this sort of thing to happen, yeah. um, and I think that's definitely something that the movie explores, mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting the way it explores that. Yeah, and I think that what I one thing that I do really like about the film is its scope, because we do see we see a couple of representatives from the church, most notably the the, the cardinal. You know the who's part of the archdiocese of Boston, mm. and so we see him in one scene. But it is a it's a good scene, and you can see how he's in charge, and he just has a, a genial quality to him. And you don't want him to be a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we also see the lawyers that sort of allowed this to happen. Uh, we saw reporters that allowed this to happen. We see lawyers that are representing the victims and then we see the victims themselves. So I do like that we see every angle and we see, although we don't often see actual children, which I find very interesting. Hmm. We rarely see actual children. We will, we do see adults that were impacted by this. And I feel like that's a very interesting choice. Hmm. Um, given that the victims are children when it happens. Um, and I find myself wondering why, and I don't think it's a bad choice. I think it's an intriguing one. Yeah. Um, and I find myself wondering like why they made that choice. Like if maybe they thought that the whole thing would just become too, 
I don't know, just too. It, it could get heart, too of, heartbreaking, maybe. Yeah, or or it could get into sort of maudlin t- territory. No too, question. It's like, look at these poor kids. Yeah. Um. So definitely is a good idea to avoid that sort of thing. But also, I think. I think because in general the the kids that they're talking about don't understand that it's wrong, right? Don't understand why it's wrong, even if they understand that it's wrong. Yeah, and so there there's a degree to which they couldn't be involved in this kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. And even though at the very end we do see uh, Stanley Tucci's character go in and talk to a couple of children that were both abused, but that's at the very end, almost yeah. as a reminder of, yes, it's this is where it starts. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and in seeing adults, we get people who now have many years since then mm-hmm. and are, and have got, they have some perspective on it and they are able to verbalize just how much this hurt them and continues to hurt them in many ways. And even the fact that many of them have hardly said anything about it themselves um, just speaks to the scope of how many people knew something was wrong and didn't do anything or didn't say anything. There's a very powerful scene that I had forgotten about. Uh, And in watching it the second time, I was like, oh, I need to remember this scene. So Michael Keaton's character, as they're looking up the various priests in Boston that that were that I would say accused, they're not no one accused them of anything. They, mm-hmm. But the church found out that had been they were on sick leave. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. Uh, he recognizes one of them from when he went to this Catholic school, mm-hmm. uh, and so he looks into it and and I think and I don't remember exactly how he gets the name of a certain classmate that that was probably a victim of this, of this priest. Mm -hmm. And so he goes to visit that guy in Providence and they haven't seen each other in many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. And so they're having this really nice conversation. And at some point, Michael Keaton says, Hey, I've got some questions to ask you about father Talbot and the other guy's face. You just see this look as though like, I know I, I I sort of never thought this day was going to come, but I also kind of expected it and he you just see his demeanor change completely yeah well because he doesn't even ask any questions does he He just says something like how did you know about that yeah he immediately says like how did you yeah how did you yeah. know and then he he goes on to say like i, I never even told my wife about that yeah so literally he's been carrying this a hundred percent alone his yeah. entire life yeah and just uh, and and is still like a functioning member of society yeah. but he's dealing with this yeah hurt and so and then we see so many so many others we see this young man who is, who's, who, who's like a, a very nice guy uh, and, and is very nervous and just, and, and also seems like a functioning guy who at worst you'd say like, oh, he just seems a little, he's kind of a goofy type mm-hmm. uh, who's maybe ha- has some anxiety here and there. But then when you, when he details what happened to him, it's just like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. And then when you look at, and this is what will bring us to our, our companion film in a moment. But when you look at the profile, it's usually boys mm-hmm. who are often fatherless mm-hmm. and are des- desperate for a father figure. Yeah. And as it happens, they have to call the priest father. Yeah. And just and so they're just in this position and often they're just happy that somebody's paying attention to them. And it just it's it is it's it's hard not to get angry. At that, especially, and we'll, I'll be reading some Bible verses later on about protecting the fatherless. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
and yeah, and then there is there is a character that is only ever on the phone that I think is such. There's so many odd oh, yeah. choices, and he is voiced. By the way, I didn't realize this immediately. Voiced by Richard Jenkins. Really? Um, yes. I didn't who know that. you know worked who was in the visitor yeah. and did this as a favor because he believed in the project. And I think it's such a neat idea that we never actually see him. He's just one more source. Mm-hmm. And you get sources however you can. Email, face to face, phone. You know, and uh and he's and he's the one who and maybe they do it because he probably provides more exposition than anybody else. Yeah. And if we were, if we actually had to watch him while he gave the exposition, then it would probably announce itself as exposition a little bit easier we'll as it is. Slow it down a little. Yeah. As it is, we just see him talking to people and then we see their reaction. So then once again, it becomes way more about how they're responding to this than the, the facts themselves, which mm-hmm. they're still important, obviously. But um, yeah, so it's just, you know, not showing children not showing this important source, uh, but still getting his information, uh, not showing too many, uh, not showing too many representatives of the church, except the biggest one, Mm -hmm. uh, but still having the church as an entity loom large, either through stories or seeing just how far reaching their, their cover up is. Mm -hmm. Um, like so often, you, you, know, you were talking about how this could have gone maudlin, mm-hmm. but didn't. So every choice that I'm talking about is one where they could have veered into melodrama in a bad way. I'm not opposed to melodrama, mm-hmm. but this shouldn't. This story shouldn't be melodramatic. Right. Um, they could have steered into that and undoubtedly gotten a huge emotional reaction from the audience, but they didn't because. I think they honestly probably took their cues from the people that whose story they're telling. They're journalists. Mm-hmm. They have a job to do. They have facts to get across. And I think, I can't imagine anybody watching this movie and crying. I mean, I, I probably teared up a little bit here and there just because of what I was hearing. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel manipulated by this film ever. Um, it feels like just a very, I think maybe my favorite of all of these types of movies is probably Michael Mann's The Insider. Um, which I think does the best job of, of all of this, where there's a great deal of style going on, there's a great deal of, of wonderful acting going on, and you're getting a lot of information at the same time. Um, but this this one is up there for me. I, I really, and I'm just kind of a sucker for journalism movies, I should mm. say. Uh, and this one is is up there for me. I, I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of Spotlight. Mm. So moving into uh, some specifics will probably wind up. I guess I did just talk about some of the script choices mm-hmm. and that is something that is a, a Tom McCarthy special. I feel like he makes movies that are not inherently emotional. He will try to get, get at them from a different angle. Mm. And one thing that I will say is that when I was hearing about spotlight, I remember thinking, what on earth makes this a Tom McCarthy film? I know the kind of movies he makes. Yeah. This doesn't seem like it. And then I saw it and it fits so well into the little profile you and I did about him. He makes movies about makeshift families. Hmm. And, and, and that is what the, these, a lot of these characters are married. Yeah. We don't see their wives or husbands. We see Rachel McAdams husband, but, but briefly, very briefly. Yeah. You know, uh, we have the characters make reference to their wives, uh, and, and, or their spouses or their children. But they are they are one unit. They're a family. There's within the spotlight unit. There's a dad, 
two brothers and a, and, and a sister. You know what I mean? And then above that, there's John Slattery, who's kind of like a goofy uncle. You know, even right down to he walks at some point, John Slattery goes to Mark Ruffalo's apartment with a, an, a pizza. <laughs> yeah. And Mark Ruffalo's, oh, thank God, I'm starving. Like, he's, like, John Slattery knew, like, he probably hasn't eaten today. So, and it really does sort of, and, and in that scene where Mark Ruffalo is yelling at Michael Keaton, it very much feels like a kid yelling at his dad, and then his dad saying, are you finished? Like, yeah. it's just a very, it feels like a, a like a family, an adult family, admittedly, but it feels like a family. Am I, am I stretching too far when I say that? No, I don't think so. I think that's... I think that makes sense and how they operate as a unit. And Mm -hmm. uh, while it may not fit family in a like like a pure analogy sense, it's it's the same idea. Um, Like a a, a, group of people having to support each other, work together, and um, that have a, a connection beneath simply the fact of work yeah and i think maybe what what does separate this aside from it being a a true story um what does separate this from other tom mccarthy films is that these people are coming together now they've already been together but in this story uh in this film they're coming together with a common goal Mm -hmm. we need to figure this thing out whereas in station agent the visitor uh, the plot of the visitor does kick in eventually, mm-hmm. but not as early as this film. Yeah. Uh, and then win, win, they're just kind of going along and getting along. And I love that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but this one has a lot more forward momentum because it's the nature of, of yeah. journalism. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So it's so interesting how much as, as a writer and as a director, how many of his films can be linked together the cobbler excluded, <laughs> even though it does, that has uh, a nice ensemble, but that's about as far as it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about the acting, which is usually the thing that people talk about first, and then they quickly talk about how it's difficult to single anybody out hmm. and say that, Oh, this person is the standout because they really, as an ensemble, everybody is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and, I genuinely believe that these people have worked together for years. That's the other thing. That's a hard thing to, that's a hard thing to mimic. Um, a shorthand, just a look, uh, mm-hmm. that implies these are not actors who got together and are saying lines. These are people that have worked together and will continue to work together after this is over. Yeah. And this is, this may be the biggest thing they ever work on, but after that, they're going to have to just move on to the next story. Yeah. Um, so is is there any? I know the performances that I really responded to, admittedly all of them, mm. but there are there are a couple that I for some reason I really focused in on them. Are there any that jumped out for you? Um, I I think I think Michael Keaton was one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, if nothing else, because we just saw him in Birdman last year, yeah, which he won for, and it was it's a we also saw him in RoboCop last year, Josh. <sighs> we did. And he is kind of the best part of the film. Well, true. Yeah. Um, but to see him do though, <laughs> I don't know how many people are drawing connections between RoboCop and Birdman, but he's playing kind of a similar character, like a over the top, mm-hmm. a little bit bombastic. Yeah. Um, and that's a thing that he's done for a lot of his career. Yeah. So seeing him do 
this character in uh, in Spotlight, which is very far from that. He's mm-hmm. very subdued. Um, in scenes where other people go over the top and get crazy, he's the calming force. Yeah. Um, so I think something about seeing that this movie in juxtaposition with those other performances, I just really enjoy it. And I really like you're seeing his range in that. And I think he has the, and I, you know, I would have liked to see a little more in the movie, honestly, and I don't know how they would have done this, but I feel like his arc is, is maybe the most interesting part of the movie for me. Oh yeah. It's in my opinion. And I, other people have contested this, but like, He's the lead. Everybody else is supporting. I think I'd agree with that because the the way that we find out that he's responded to this story um, ends up being a microcosm for the story as a whole. Exactly. When I say story, I mean the story that the journalists are digging up, not, not the story of the film. Um, but I, I feel like that gives it more power and that gives it some personal connection. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like that's the most interesting part of it. And I feel, I feel like maybe I would have, maybe I, I would have liked it if some way it were clear that he were the lead to anyone who saw that movie. And I, I, I don't know how you would have done that. I, don't know. I think it's not revealed that I think it doesn't really come into sharp focus that he's the lead until the reveal at the end. Yeah. Um, and at that moment, and that to me is what is, you know, to go back to what you were talking about, that a film that just takes glee and sticking it to the man, his arc keeps that from happening. Yeah. Because when you, you come to realize, Oh shoot, Mm -hmm. I guess I'm also part of the problem. Yeah. You know? And when you realize that, um, and just, and also just the sadness in him with every growing scene, and you'll just see little hints of it here and there of like why he is now responding to this in a slightly different way, Yeah, you know? And that might explain why when, Mark Ruffalo is yelling at him about these monsters, these scumbags, Michael Keaton. I don't think he feels particularly attacked by Mark Ruffalo, but in that it's why he's probably able to keep his head because he's like, what, what right do I have to get mad at these people? Yeah. You know, and it comes out in a scene with him and, uh, Jamie Sheridan, an actor that I always enjoy seeing his lawyer buddy who actually does put something of a cherry on it where he just says, you know, all these people, you said that that a lot of people knew. Well, where were you? And Michael Keaton's like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. And just, and it's just this thing of he and somebody like a Jamie Sheridan and Billy Crudup, like people who were in a position to know and are a little bit older than these other people. Um, there is this feeling of just guilt, just eating them up mm-hmm. of like, why couldn't I have done more? Did I know? Did I not know? did I not care who knows what it is? And just, and it's just, it just permeates the whole film. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and that's the thing. I do feel like the tone of the, the tone of the film, not the, the arc of the film. And I think also the emotional tone of the film matches Michael Keaton's. It doesn't mm-hmm. match anybody else's. Yeah. You know, it's, I could say it's, well, Liev Schreiber's pretty close, but he's also a little bit more, he's less, he's at a remove. He's, he's removed one of these that, people. Yeah. He's, he's almost kind of like a uh, audience surrogate in a way. Like kind he's, of, yes. he's our entry point into the story and yeah. he's coming in from the outside and being like, Hey, what about this? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was all to say Michael Keaton's performance is one I really enjoyed. Um, and then you mentioned earlier, it might've been off mic, but uh, Stanley Tucci. 
Yeah, Stanley Tucci is one of the two that really jumps out to me. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he he's 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 a great actor, and yeah, um, he's one of those he's one of those that when he is being a character actor, he is there's nobody better at it. You know, like he yeah. he really can make these characters come alive, and they can be he he's good. He's a good one too at taking characters that are kind of strange and making them. Uh, human yeah well that, that's what I was going to say that he, he he doesn't keep them from being eccentric but they're still human yeah and that's a hard thing to do and, that, and I think there are a lot of other big actors that are for example um, a lot of I was about to say a lot of big actors that don't do that uh, for example this year I thought in Black Mass uh, uh, Johnny Depp was doing the opposite of that he just mm-hmm. took a real character and made him into a cartoon character when, mm-hmm. and I I disliked that movie for many reasons, but that was one of them. There's a number of reasons that I do not care for that movie. His performance isn't one of them. It, there are a couple of scenes. That's the thing. I feel like there are a couple of scenes where the writing is there. And I think he manages to underplay things enough mm. while still conveying menace. Mm. But the rest of the time, the thing that gets, we're not doing an episode about black mass. <laughs> I already did. I did an episode of real world theology about black mass actually. Oh, wow. um, and the thing that gets me is just like, we've seen mob movies before. Mm hmm. We have not seen corrupt FBI agent movies before. Switch this around, make Joel Edgerton the lead, and Johnny Depp is supporting. Now I'm interested. Mm-hmm. Now I'm seeing something new. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But yes, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, and when you think about it, like, I think a lot of people, when they think of Stanley Tucci, especially these days, they probably think of The Hunger Games. Yeah. Where he's amazing. Yeah. He like he does such a good job of creating the he and, and Elizabeth Banks do such a great job of cre- of creating a, a major aspect of what that world is mm-hmm. just in how they obviously how they dress which is not their choice but um, but how they just express themselves mm-hmm. and he's and he's marvelous uh, in that and to think that he can go from that to this again playing a, a, an eccentric character a guy who kind of wears his heart on his sleeve. But then there, and it becomes clear the more you get to know him that he probably does that as sort of a first line of defense, whether it be a reporter, another lawyer, whatever it is, I'm going to be very blustery. I'm going to kind of put them back on their heels so that they're never totally comfortable with me. And that way I can kind of control the situation. Mm -hmm. But the more he trusts Mark Ruffalo, the quieter he gets. Yeah. But the intensity doesn't go away. Right. And he is one of those... He is a person that is always trying to be in control. Yeah. And I th- the reason he softens is because when he trusts people more, he knows he still has control. Yeah. And he realizes, I can't do this alone. Yeah. And, oh, I wish I didn't have to, but I do have to depend on other people. And, oh, my gosh, I found somebody I can depend on. And and there's and there's a moment at the end when the article has been published. And this is something that he did not think was going to happen. But the article has been published. And he's looking at it and you're saying like, good job. Well, I've got to get back to work. You know? yeah. and he, but he does say like, keep doing what you're doing. Like he acknowledges this is an important thing for me. Mm-hmm. This makes my job so much easier. Um, and it's just a, it's just a really great performance. I, I found myself really bummed that the people that were in contention from an award standpoint were Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, and Rachel McAdams. All of them very good. It bummed me out that nobody was talking about Stanley Tucci. Yeah. The other one for me is Liev Schreiber, 
who I think does a great, a really great job because he has a character who's almost, it's not that he's devoid of emotion. It's that he can't show it. He's not allowed Mm -hmm. to show it. And he needs to be sort of the, the source of, of strength. And he has to see, he has to keep his eye on the prize, uh, even when other people can't. And I'm a big fan of Liev Schreiber. He also is in a movie last year called Pawn Sacrifice, where he plays Boris Baskey, oh, yeah. uh, who played chess against um, Bobby Fischer. And he's marvelous in that as well. There's just something about him as an actor that I respond to. And I think it might be that he has such a powerful voice that it would be, not unlike Stanley Tucci, it would be very easy for him to just use that mm-hmm. and just play big roles and... And he has. I said he played Orson Welles in RKO two eighty one, but instead he he likes to utilize silence and be quiet and just seem small and uh, even but by but still convey an air of authority. Has he ever been in a western? It's a weird thing to ask. I don't think so. But can't you kind of see that like almost a Clint Eastwood type Absolutely. character? Like he's got that sort of like steely-eyed thing and well this won't mean anything to you but in x-men origins wolverine he did play Sabretooth. i i saw x-men origins wolverine but but i mean like do you know who Sabretooth is like as a character no and i hated that movie yeah most people did i didn't even see it and wolverine was my favorite character growing up (laughs) and i was actually when i heard that he was playing Sabretooth, i remember being like that's it is certainly not my first choice for casting but that's a neat idea and the reason that I say it now is because so much in the comics, so much of the relationship between Wolverine and Sabretooth is very much like an old West type of thing. Um, They both regularly wear cowboy hats. They hang out (laughs) in seedy old bars out in the country and stuff like that. And so, yeah, he would make a very specific, would he play like the, the hired assassin or would he be something else? I could see him being the drifter. Yeah. Can you see that a, a little good bit? drifter or a bad drifter? Who's to say? Oh, you've just <laughs> blown my mind. Uh, but yeah, so I, I really responded to him. And then on top of everything else, to link this with the movie that is not our companion film, All the President's Men, uh, it's fun that John Slattery plays Ben Bradley Jr. <laughs> ben Bradley is the is Jason Robards in All the President's Men. <laughs> so I find that just fascinating. Um But yeah, uh, and then, but everybody in the cast is great. Rachel McAdams is a, approaches her role very understated. And I think it probably comes with the fact that she, that her character, Sasha, was it Sasha Pfeiffer? Sasha Baron Cohen, yes. (laughs) Again, surprisingly understated. Famed journalist. Um, (laughs) Now I'm just picturing every line that she says being said (laughs) as Borat. (laughs) Borat. Um, so, uh, but her character, I think is probably very aware that she is the one woman in the group. And so for whatever reason, like maybe she feels like she has to work harder because she does work very hard. And maybe it's worth noting that yes, Mark Ruffalo does go out and talk to the victims, but she talks to more of the victims, Mm -hmm. maybe because she just seems she just appears more sympathetic um maybe she was assigned because she's the only woman in the unit who's to say yeah but that's the thing that i that i do like is that they don't say it. she doesn't act like oh they're all sexist or anything like that it's more just the awareness because one thing that this film is about is the very specific um 
you know, this, this cloistered idea of this, this community, it could be, okay, Boston Catholics. And then you have somebody like, um, Liev Schreiber, his character is not from Boston and he's Jewish. You have, uh, Stanley Tucci, whose character is Armenian, also I don't think from Boston. Then you have her, who is the only woman in the group. So and and is probably just aware of not that she doesn't belong, but that she is different than the majority. Yeah, there's definitely a theme of outsiders. In yeah, this which I just find so fascinating, such a neat idea, and and the idea of like the necessity for outsiders because you can get so tunnel visioned when you're inside this community. Uh, that you may not see that it requires Liev Schreiber to come in and say, hey, I think there's a deeper story here. Can we dig into it? It requires Stanley Tucci to say, hey, there's more going on here, and, I think, and, and I'm going to look into it. And, uh, and that's yet another thing that the film does without even really calling that much attention to it. Yeah. Um, if anything, it is called attention to it in the way that some people say, well, that, that editor of yours, the Liev Schreiber character, that editor of yours, he's not one of us. Like, mm-hmm. he's got an axe to grind. Yeah. You know, and that could mean he's not Catholic. He's not from Boston. It's just, it's a, it's a reason to brush his opinion aside. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And now, as far as the way the film is shot, it's shot in a very standard way. Um, and I think that is one of the differences between that and a movie like All the President's Men or The Insider which heightened the paranoia through use of shadow and a very, that kind of gritty seventies thing that we're always talking about. Um, This is shot with, you know, very much It's all like fluorescent lights. Everything is out in the open. It's not moody really at all. Um, It's just, again, I, I almost feel like Tom McCarthy just felt like I'm going to let the style of this, of the, I, I, I guess the structure of the screenplay and the style of the filmmaking, I'm going to let that be inspired by just the process of journalism. Hmm. Um, that's my take on it. I don't know. I know a lot of people that get mad that the film is not has doesn't have more style to it in the filmmaking. And I can see that. I feel like you could probably do something with it. Hmm. But I don't know. What What is your take on that? Um. I don't know. I, I didn't feel strongly about it one way or the other. And maybe that's a criticism. I don't know that it didn't... No. Um, stand out to me as uh as anything that i don't know e- either way good or bad um i i suppose an argument could be made that as opposed to the <coughs> sort of uh gritty back room stuff that was happening for something like watergate mm-hmm. this was a situation where everything was happening kind of in plain sight yeah uh i just thought of that right now so i don't know yeah. if that's uh, just probably I mean, that's the thing is like, if you're shooting a movie where everything just seems like it is, you're creating an environment where why would, why would I need to dig any deeper? Yeah. You know, and, and you're putting the audience in that mindset as well. Everything feels safe and out in the open. Mm -hmm. Oh wait, it's not. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there is one moment that, uh, so our friend Jason Eakin saw this film before I did, and he did mention uh, a shot to me so I was kind of going in looking for it. Mm. Uh, and then I definitely saw it the first time. And then I saw it the, the second time and it, it does stick out a little bit when the characters are, they're all huddled around the phone hearing Richard Jenkins talk about the enormity of the problem. And that it's probably not the 13 priests in Boston. It's probably about 90. Mm. And so they're working that out and it's all done in one 
in one long take. And it starts with, uh, I'd say, a medium shot of every, you know, you can see everybody huddled around the phone. And this, the camera's just slowly but surely pulling back and back and back and back until fi- once it's become clear just how much, just how bad the problem is. Everybody looks a lot smaller than they did. It's almost as though, oh, wow, this this is much, A, it's much larger than us, but it's also a much larger task than we thought it was going to be. Mm. And uh, and I remember Jason mentioning that, and it definitely is there. I can see it. Mm. Um, and it does, it's similar, actually, to a shot in uh, All the President's Men, mm. where it's all one take, and it's Robert Redford on the phone. Um, and But in that case, it's the camera zooming in on him, and eventually cutting out all distractions except him. But anyway, um, so I'm trying to think if there's anything else that would really that really jumped out at me uh, about the film as far as uh, from an artistic standpoint. Um, nothing I can think of. So I'll go ahead and move on. Um, so one of the things that I that, that, and we're getting kind of into the into the theme now, and this is all going to sound very very intangible, very strange, and I apologize in advance. Um, so one of the reasons I wanted to do an episode about this movie uh, is that is about my response to the film. Now you yourself, you said that you were kind of worried that it was going to be like a, a sticking it to the man type film. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was going to be. I, I was worried it was going to be that as well. I probably should have had a bit more uh, faith in Tom McCarthy. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you see movies that are about the church, it could be Catholic, it could be Christian, whatever it is. It's about the church. It's about a religious belief and how people within that can be hypocritical, hypocritical, can be criminal, mm-hmm. can be corrupt, can be any number of things. Um, you know, it's whether it be Night of the Hunter or, you know, any or, uh, you know, Mystic River, another Boston movie, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's a thing that you can go to pretty easily to kind of it just it pushes a button in audiences that like, hey, wait, these people are supposed to be holy and they're acting worse than I do. Mm-hmm. Um so that's kind of what I was thinking going in. I was reluctant to see the movie. Of course, I knew I was going to see it. I figured I'd probably like it, but I was reluctant at first to see the movie because I just didn't, I, I felt like I didn't have the energy. I didn't have the energy to go in and watch another like faith bashing movie. And, I, and isn't it interesting that now, of course, I didn't know that it wasn't going to be faith bashing, but that's the first place my mind went that to point out the terrible things that people within this institution could do that my first thought is that it's going to it's going to start talking about larger things like the belief system itself mm-hmm. and it was going to condemn that and going mm-hmm. to condemn the inherent hypocrisy that comes with belief uh, that was my concern and that is what made me reluctant to see the film and the more I thought about it once especially once I saw the film, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, you know, it's probably, and maybe I'm being a, a bit too hard on myself, but it's probably that attitude that allows this sort of thing to happen in the first place. Mm-hmm. People who feel like, well, if I bring up my own issues, you know, the things that I struggle with, if I bring that up, or if I point it out to other people uh, that, hey, I know that, you know, this pastor was doing this terrible thing, then it might not bode well. It might not look good. 
and I'm trying to sell people that this is uh, that this is the way to live. This is the thing to believe. But if they see that I am that I, that I'm capable of such tre- you know, tremendously terrible things, then maybe they won't believe it. And uh, and frankly, maybe I won't believe it. So I'll just sort of sweep it under the carpet. I might keep doing it. I might not. I don't know. But one thing I know for sure, I'm not going to tell anybody because it's just, it's not going to make Jesus look very good. Mm-hmm. And so much of that now, obviously in Spotlight, it's also an institution that is trying to protect its own power. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that as well. But there's a really wonderful scene where, uh, you know, Michael Keaton is meeting another old friend who does, you know, work for the church and and the guy's like, hey, look, you know, maybe let's just let this go for a while. It's right It's right after 9-11. So he's like, hey, the city needs the church now more than ever. And he's just kind of leaning on him a little bit. And then Michael Keaton says, this is how it starts, is it? Isn't it? Like one guy leans on another guy in a really friendly way and all that. And that idea of, oh, this is how it starts. That is, that is a, a thing that I thought to myself as I was thinking about my reaction to this movie, or at least my, before I saw it, Hmm. it's, oh yeah, this is how it starts. This is how, uh, people don't trust Christians and, and immediately think that they are hypocrites. My, my uncle had, uh, this saying that, uh, always bothered me, but I think he has a point actually that Christians always do. They'll always do uh, out the back, either the back door or the back porch, whatever it is. They'll always do what the out the back door, what everybody else does out the front, which is to say, we're doing it out here in the open. We're we know that we're flawed. We know that we make mistakes, and we're just but everyone knows about it. And you guys act like you're not, but you're doing the exact same thing, just where no one can see you. And that that idea is something that. Certainly a lot of people believe. I know I've known plenty of people who say that very standard cliche response that, and eh, there's too many hypocrites in church. Like I don't want to go. Um, and so, and I feel like when we act as though the thing that we are ashamed of either as a function of the church or of ourselves, uh, when we act like it didn't happen so that we can save face, I feel like that is not only does it make the problem worse, uh, or could make the problem worse, or at least creates an environment in which the problem could get worse. Um, but I feel like it also is the exact opposite of how Christians are supposed to act when it comes to our own flaws. Do you, like, do you know what I'm saying? This, I'm saying very lofty things, I think, mm. but it, I also want to make sure that I'm making sense. Josh, your thoughts. I wasn't listening. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, moving on. So, um, no, uh, yeah, I, th- I think, I think that makes sense. I think, uh, uh, I mean, I feel like we've talked before about the criticisms of the church as hypocritical mm-hmm. and uh, that those are in some ways, those are not unfounded criticisms. Yeah. And um, I think it is important for us to, to recognize that uh, one of our responsibilities in the church is, is, as being part of the church, should be... That we're the, we're the first people that would point out something like this, right? Um, and th- that obviously didn't happen in this in in this instance. Um, so I think that's important uh, to understand. But I I also feel like I feel like there's there's two sides to that. There's there's yes, Christians should be 
watchful for that sort of thing all the time and careful about that. Um, but at the same time, we need to we need to be able to separate the acts out from uh, the institution, for want of a better word, no. um, be, because there are people who who not only are call themselves Christian, but are kind of bear the mantle of responsibility in the Christian church or authority. Uh, when those people do something wrong, that doesn't mean that the system is wrong. That doesn't mean right. that uh, Christianity is wrong. And I, I think, I honestly think I think the movie is making that implication a little bit. I don't think it's the point, but I think there is something in the back of it that's like, how much can we trust these people when they are lying about these other things in right. order to sustain themselves? I'm being, I would be inclined to agree with you were it not for one little exchange with the Richard Jenkins character over the phone. Mm. When he's talking about how he's not in church, he doesn't go to church anymore, uh, but that he still, belie- he still believes this stuff. And Mark Ruffalo's character is just completely taken aback like he has no idea how does that work and he says well the church now he does say the church you know so in this case the catholic church well the church is an institution run by men he's like my concern is with the eternal and mark ruffalo says that sounds really complicated and he says (laughs) it is and it is you know and, and and in that moment because this is a character who maybe who's spent years decades in fact researching this stuff and it and it has not caused him to lose his faith i think it speaks to this idea that if this guy can't lose if he still sees that there is merit here then there must be merit here Mm. that's kind of it's it's a small scene but i do like it and i like the inclusion of it yeah and and i like the inclusion of it as well part of me feels like that can be uh that can be uh, apologetic for that sort of mindset of the church is a bad thing, but there are good eternal things that sure. you can sure. uh, that you can find on your own, and and that sort of like the idea of a corporate group of believers is is unnecessary and unimportant, right? Um, and I feel like that's such an integral part of christian faith that i don't know uh, that, that that the idea of rejecting that and still being fully connected to the eternal is is i, I don't know I, I think i take issue with it and it would be tough you know honestly like if if something happened to me or my children or something like that in my church mm-hmm. and i just i would feel betrayed certainly even if I didn't lose my 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 faith, you know, um, I would still feel a little bit suspicious of the system that let it happen, mm-hmm. and be like, I am at the very least reluctant. I probably wouldn't go back to that church, but I might be reluctant. I might have pause before mm-hmm. I put myself and and my perhaps my children back in that situation again. Yeah, it's like. Mm. I'll hold off for a while uh, because I can still pray at home. I can still read the Bible at home and all that. And while I do believe that that a community is important in some way, shape, or form, at the very least from an accountability standpoint, 
Well, that community was not very, it was not super accountable. So no. I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold off for a while, but yes, I, I, I know, I, I see what you mean. Um, but yeah, so one thing that I, that I think is, is interesting is, so there's a, a character who is a, a victim mm-hmm. and he says, uh, they say it's just physical abuse, but it's more than that. This was spiritual abuse. You know why I went along with everything? Because priests are supposed to be the good guys. And I feel like you can swap out priest for Christian. Like Christians are supposed to be the good guys. We're the ones, we're supposed to be aspiring to something higher. That's what we're supposed to be. Now, I hope everyone can hear like a slight facetious tone in my voice because that is the public, that is the cultural idea that a Christian is can be defined by what they do and what they do right and what they think is right. Now mm-hmm. that is part of it, obviously, you know, striving for holiness and such, but that's not actually what we do. At no point does it say, and no point does it say that we will be better. We should try to be better. Sure. But it doesn't say we will be better. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, just last week, you know, we were talking about the idea of boasting in your weakness and, uh, just being very open and honest about the stuff that you deal with. It's why on this show I've spoken very open and on, openly and honestly about like my struggles with porn and depression and doubt and all of these things, because partially it can be very freeing to do so. Uh, and you realize that, Oh, to admit this doesn't actually ruin my life. Uh, and, and then it can all, it turns out it also winds up being something of a comfort to other people who often think they're also the only ones dealing with it. And so, um, so yeah, I, that's it's it's this very strange instinct. This I almost like a sense of self preservation, uh, and this idea of of worrying more about how you appear than how you actually are, and that is the that is the opposite of of what Christianity should be. It's mm-hmm. it's like that's that you could you could make the best. I, okay, the closest I would say is when you say like, well, that's who I was. That's not who I am anymore. Even if I make these mistakes, even if I, if I commit these sins, I don't want to. And thankfully God's forgiveness is there for me. And hopefully I'm taking the steps to keep that from happening again. But if you're not going to admit it, it's going to be, who are you going to tell? You know, Mm -hmm. who are you going to have hold you accountable? How are you going to take these steps if, if you're unwilling to tell anybody about it? And I understand like in this case, we're talking about, you know, talking about priests who could go to jail mm-hmm. and rightfully so. So, you know, they stand to lose a lot, but that is the natural consequence of what they're doing. So, uh, so the companion film that I wanted to talk about is uh, doubt written and directed by John Patrick Shanley, who uh, was a playwright and an occasional uh, screenwriter uh, who I believe wrote the script for Congo where you are the endangered species. Now, by weird <laughs> happenstance, I also happen to have a big book about the making of Congo sitting on our ta- on my table That's right now. That's very strange. That's an odd. That is that was not planned. Um, so it's, so he wrote and directed it. Uh, it came out in two thousand eight. It stars Meryl Streep, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, Viola Davis, and others who probably don't have any lines. Um, all <laughs> yeah. four of them were nominated for Oscars. Uh, so Meryl Streep, Best Actress. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, supporting actor, Viola Davis, and Amy Adams, supporting actress. It was also nominated for adapted screenplay. So, uh, I like Doubt. I really like Doubt. Some of the performances, I think, are amazing. As a film, I think it's fine. I think John Patrick Shanley is not a natural filmmaker, and I think 
you know, he tried to, it's like he tried to uh, subvert the idea that, well, it's just a filmed play by just having all these weird Dutch angles. I noticed the Dutch angles you know too. I mean? They felt forced. Didn't it they? felt very forced. <laughs> I felt like, wait, am I, is a Batman villain about to come out? <laughs> Cause that's what they did back in that old Adam West series. Yeah. To show that these guys are a little skewed. Yeah. You can't trust them. No, I felt the same way. I felt like, uh, I felt like there were instances when, when he was trying things that I think were unnecessary, um, just to, because it's a movie. Yeah. Um, I think it'd be fine to just film it sort of as a play. That's yeah. If it, it if you have great material and great actors and the answer is yes on both counts, yeah. you'll be fine. Yeah. I think you're going to make it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, but did you, do you like the movie? I think I do. Yeah. yeah. I think I like it as a whole. And uh, I mean, a lot of it is, is because of the performances. And I think the, the story has enough of a, the story has enough of a, the sort of enigmatic quality to it mm-hmm. where, I remember talking with people afterwards about the movie and there were people who could easily, who could feel strongly one way or the other. He did it or he didn't do it. Yeah. And I thought, I think that says something for the, uh, for the script because of the nature of it. It's supposed to be about doubt and that such a reasonable, such a reasonable doubt can be cast on either read of the film. Yeah. I think mean, that's, that was, uh, I, I like the way that was done. It seems like a very theater thing to do. Like, uh, yeah. it's like David Mamet's Oleana. Yeah. Where you come away, not so much the movie because William H. Macy's a better actor than the anonymous actress they got to play his, uh, co-star, uh, to be his co-star. Um, but, uh, that's one where even though there's no mysteries, there are people that can watch the exact same play and come away with the, and have completely different sympathies. Um, yeah. And it doesn't always match in that one doesn't always match up like men and women. Like it's, it, it's just, I guess maybe it's your mood on the day. Who's yeah. to say, but uh, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to like about doubt. That is a solid, solid script. I was looking over, you know, to prepare for this, I was looking at some of the, you know, the IMDb memorable quotes and immediately just thought, right. I haven't seen this movie in a long time. It's right up there on my shelf. I should throw it in. Then I remembered, oh yeah, it's really emotionally intense. It's not something I <laughs> casually throw in. So instead I started watching RoboCop 2. Oh, good. <laughs> Which is really good, by the way. <laughs> is it like, really? It's, it's very much cut from the same cloth as that first one. Like a lot of good satire in there. Huh. Um, but that RoboCop 2 is not the companion <laughs> film for Spotlight. <laughs> um, though if I tried hard, I could probably make it work. Um, you, so, should have a, you should have like a thing you throw out to the listeners one time where they give you two movies and you have to make the connection between them for an episode. You've got a deal. <laughs> listeners, Tyler at morethanonelesson.com. Two movies. Just throw a, you know, throw darts at a, at a wall at a video store. They don't exist anymore. Um, and just uh, now if I haven't seen them, I'll do my best, but I can't guarantee uh, success. This would be, oh, this is fun. Good job, Josh. I knew I had you back on for a reason. Um so yeah, doubt is the story of this uh, this small uh, church in New York, I believe. Boston again? No, I don't know. It could have been Boston. I don't think so. Based on based on some of the accents, specifically Meryl Streep's, I don't think it's Boston. Mm. But I might be wrong. Um, and so it's this small church with, uh, you know, the the. 
I don't think she's called. It's not the head nun. I don't think they call them. That. I don't think they say, "Hey, who's the head nun?" I don't think uh, they say. There's the a mother superior. Mother superior, uh, played by um, Meryl Streep. Her character's name is uh, Sister Aloysius Bouvier. It's like, wow, that's a lot of. Ugh, even her name is an assault. It's a little silly. Um, but yeah, and so she she runs this place with an iron fist. Um, but then in comes this priest, this young upstart, cool, hip priest, uh, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who does things a little bit differently and, uh, and is willing to introduce certain cultural ideas that she's not comfortable with at all. And so they naturally don't, she naturally does not like him. And then he is a little bit at odds with her as well. Uh, and then it comes out that then there's a, uh, sort of an accusation not even maybe not even an accusation so much as a suspicion that philip seymour hoffman has uh, molested this young boy once again fatherless uh so like you know fits the profile yeah and we never really know if it happened or not but meryl streep has decided she's going to get to the bottom of it even though he's very popular in that church and she is not hmm. um, and then caught in the middle is amy adams who is a who is also a nun but is is younger and and is inclined to like uh, the this new priest uh, as we are by the way, um, and so it's just this back and forth and just these really great scenes between the two of them and and just the the force of nature that Meryl Streep plays. I know some people think that, that say that she's overplaying it, but I, I feel like it's just a it's a performance out of a different age, and I say that in a good way. It's a performance that I feel like could come could have come about from like the 40s like the 40s or 50s well i think it's a character for a different age really yeah like that's true a, a mother superior is kind of an uh, an an alien thing to most of us that's true um yeah and it is and it is set back then so maybe uh she's like oh, i i know how i'm gonna talk based on all these movies <laughs> um so <clears throat> so there's just this constant you know, the word doubt applies to so many things. It applies to us not sh- not being sure who did it. It applies to Amy Adams not being sure who did it. And then at the very end, it, it actually applies to Meryl Streep as well. The The last line of the film is, I have such doubts. But, w- but what's more, we don't really know what she's talking about. We don't know if it has to do with this direct story or something much, much larger. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I feel like it's probably the larger thing because this is a character who is very certain of everything and most certainly her faith and how it should be implemented. So for her to say, I have such doubts, my first thought is, well, what else, what else could she have doubts about? This is her whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's a film that uh, acknowledges that this is a, a major part of belief and a major part of life, I would say. Um, but she still moves on ahead, you know. She still she still has doubts here and there, uh, but she still moves on ahead. Like she, I am of the opinion coming out of the film. I'm of the opinion that Philip Seymour Hoffman did it. What do you think? I, have I don't doubts. know. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry, I stepped on you saying I have my doubts. Um, but do you do you actually not know, uh, or do you? I I guess I'm. I'd say I'm leaning towards that, but not. Uh, I don't know. It's obviously not for sure. Yeah, I feel like I don't have a, a strong a strong feeling one way or the other. I feel yeah. like it, it. I feel like the movie really tries to be on that line in between, and I feel like yeah. it does it well enough that I, I, as soon as I think one way sounds seems pretty clear, then the other way yeah. starts to become more clear. Yeah. Um, 
so looking at a few of the of the lines from here that I find that I think are so again just very well written John Patrick Shanley whether he's writing Moonstruck or Doubt or Congo where you are the endangered species uh, he's just he's a really wonderful writer of dialogue um, so <clears throat> Sister James that's Amy Adams she says I don't think Father Flynn did anything wrong the Meryl Streep's character says, you just want things to be resolved so you can have simplicity back. Mm. Now, while I do think that it's just like, anytime someone says, you just, <laughs> anything that comes after is going to be a little bit insulting <laughs> and probably more than a little reductive. Uh, I guess that's the nature of the word just. Um, unless it has to do with like justice. Hey. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, and I do find myself wondering like how often... And so while I do find that reductive and insulting of the character, I do think there is something, I think she's observing human nature there. Like, yeah, so many things having to do with my faith, I would love to brush to the side so that I could just have a very simple faith, a very mm -hmm. plain faith that just says, God will take care of everything. His opinion is the only one that matters, you know, and that sort of thing. But then other things, you know, my own pride, the world itself, everyday stress, that comes in. And it's just like, oh, I wish I could just move all that to the side so that, so that I could just have a, a simpler faith. But it's like, well, what I'm basically saying there is if my life were simpler, my faith would be stronger. Meanwhile, the nature of faith is that it needs to persevere even when things are tough. Right. And it can. And it's not uh, – th this sort of line is not – for the viewer of the film, at least meant to be simply directed at characters like Amy Adams, yeah. that this could apply to Meryl Streep's character as well, because yeah. she wants things to go back to the way that they were yeah. before father Flynn showed up and, and jazzercised the church or whatever. <laughs> Let's jazzed up the church. There that, we go. that works better. Yeah. Um, as it turns out saying jazzed up is actually a less dated thing than <laughs> saying jazzercise. I know. Um, but yeah, like, and and if you are looking at the film as, uh, if you're looking at the story as he he didn't do it, then that's really what she's doing is creating creating a problem in order to get things back to the way that she wants it. So, yeah. like you said, that's that both the film and her character are observing something that is natural in human nature. Um, and now here's here's a thing that I find very interesting because. I understand the sentiment, but I don't agree with it. Hmm. Uh, so Sister James says, it is unsettling to look at people with suspicion. I feel less close to God. And then Sister Bouvier says, when you take a step to address wrongdoing, you are taking a step away from God, but in his service. Looking at that line, I found myself wondering, how does she say that you're, when you're, when you're addressing wrongdoing, you're taking a step away from God? Now, my first thought is, well, I guess to address wrongdoing, you need to get close to it. Mm -hmm. You need to be in the presence of it, which means you're further from God. But I find it such an, such an odd idea that she says, you're, yes, you're stepping away from God, but you're, it's in his service. And I guess it's just maybe the way this character approaches her faith. And it's like, well, yes, but you recognize that when you are addressing wrongdoing, when you are fighting for good and for justice, then you are definitely bringing God with you into yeah. that. You know what I mean? And it could be, maybe it could be justification for something that she knows is wrong. Like yeah. uh, that type of 
suspicion and yeah. in a way infighting. Um, yeah. it, it could be, I mean, many people throughout the history of the church have rationalized doing something that is a sin because of the greater good. Yeah. And, and maybe that's her yes, idea I'm, here. I'm stepping away from God for a moment, but it's in his service. So it'll all work out. Right. And undoubtedly it has his blessing. <laughs> um, and then there's this marvelous line that I found surprisingly convicting. And maybe I shouldn't, but um, at one point in the midst of all this, uh, Sister James is saying, I don't have it written down here, but saying something like, I'm having a hard time sleeping. And then Sister Bouvier says, maybe we're not supposed to sleep so well. And it's such a weird thing. This character is a kind of, is sort of a negative character. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's somebody that I probably, I would definitely not get along with. And I, and I don't think I would often agree with her, but, it, but she does say some things that are just so interesting. And the idea of maybe we shouldn't sleep so well, if sleeping means that you are shutting out wrongdoing and you're shutting out wrongdoing that's under, that's right under your nose. If that's what sleeping means, then maybe you shouldn't sleep so well. Maybe you should be troubled a little bit by the world around you, especially if it's something that you can make a difference in. And I just thought that was such an interesting idea because when you think about it, so much of, of spotlight are characters that are sleeping very well. Mm -hmm. And except I'd say the, the person that sleeps the least is probably Stanley Tucci's character who looks very frazzled, yeah. looks very messy yeah. and is probably sleeping only. And, and I, I just, they didn't include this and that's to their credit, but can't you just imagine him, uh, taking some, uh, uh, Alka-Seltzer? Like he just <laughs> seems like the type that's about to, just, that just drank it just before Mark Ruffalo walks in. But like, he doesn't seem, he just seems like a guy who's just perpetually exhausted because, he doesn't have time to sleep. Mm. You know, he himself says that he doesn't have time for a wife. He's got a job to do. And I'm not suggesting that we all live that way, but he's getting the job done. And I don't know. It's just, it's, it's an idea that I thought was interesting. And so the, the, I, I have a number of Bible verses and we don't necessarily have to read all of them, but, um, but a lot of them have to do with this idea of, of fighting for, for justice and, and, you know, and I recognize that these days the term justice, especially when paired with the word social, has a very strong connotation to it. It is it is a loaded term. Um, it is used as an insult by some and a uh, a notice of you know your own holiness by others. And so, uh, so I'm reluctant to even. It's frustrating because I feel like the term justice, even though I'm not saying social justice, I feel like the term justice is now so loaded that I feel like it's been taken from me. Justice is a good thing. Truth, justice, and the American way. That's what Superman fights for. You know, the American way. I feel like that's probably gone now. Uh, (laughs) Not the concept itself, but I feel like no one would ever say that of Superman anymore. No. Um, It's like, come on, Superman, think globally. Um, (laughs) Act locally by all means. Also, I feel like even the man on the street, if you were to go to him and say, like, what if Superman's fighting for the American way, what would that be? He'd be like, probably killing some Indians or something. Oh, undoubtedly, yes. The person saying Native Americans, but I understand what you're saying. <laughs> um, uh, by the way, everybody, sorry for the uh, the general politics of what we just said. We are in the midst of primary season, <laughs> and this is how I am. I apologize. Uh, vote Trump. That's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> Please don't do that. Please don't. I know I try not to endorse candidates. Uh, do not vote for Donald Trump. Please. Please. Moving on. Um, 
maybe I'll cut that out. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, we'll, I'll, I'll rattle off a, a few of these pretty quickly. Um, so Proverbs twenty one fifteen. Fair enough. Uh, this should be easy. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous. And I feel like that's such an interesting idea that we have so many people in spotlight and in doubt who justice is being done or justice could be done and they take no joy in it at all. They're just like, hey, come on, man. Why you got to mess with the system? Mm-hmm. You know, even though they admit that it's bad. They know it's bad, but they're very content to say, well, it's just a few bad apples. There's not a larger problem with, with you know, I won't even say the faith. I, I'll go back to this term I've been using, the implementation of faith. Uh, meanwhile, if, like, and all this is done in the name of Christianity. Mm. And in the name of Christianity, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous. We should be happy when this is done. Yes, it, like my first instinct is like, oh boy, that's unfortunate. Well, and obviously I'm saying it's unfortunate that the thing happened at all, but why not say, thank God, quite literally, thank God that that person is off the streets. Thank God that this corruption has been rooted out because now we can get back to work. You know, that's what it should be. But instead it's like, oh, this is going to make all of us look bad. Mm-hmm. If, it, But you know what? Those of us who take joy in justice being done, it's not going to make us look bad, you know, because we're trying to embrace the nature of 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 a just and loving god yeah. not one who says that we should be ashamed not one who says that just sweep every that your image is the most important thing um yeah. now you look well, like you got something on your brain well i was because i was thinking like i think sometimes it does make us look bad but i think not by any uh standard that matters if that makes sense sure okay uh elaborate because for instance what I was thinking, so I'm not, I'm not, I've never been a member of the Catholic church, so I don't really understand. Are you now or have you, have you ever been? <laughs> um, but, uh, so I can't speak to the, uh, at first I was thinking, I can't speak to how they, what they worry would happen. What is the worry that, what, what will happen if this gets out? Mm-hmm. But then you think there have been a lot of uh, high profile cases in the Protestant church of some pastor who was cheating on his wife or who, who was having, uh, or, or yeah. I think there are cases of molestation, things like that. Yeah. So when those stories break, often <laughs> it does make the church look bad and, yeah. and, and people use that as a, as a time to say, this is what these Christians are like. They want to make it seem like they're the good ones and yeah. that we're all doing wrong things, but they're doing stuff out the back door that everyone yeah. else is doing in the front door. Um, so I think there, there is, that is the fear because I think there is a, a world that wants to use that to make, uh, to make us look bad. Even, you know, when something like that happens and it gets rooted out, that's, that's an example of what should have happened with the Catholic church earlier. That's an example of the right thing. So it's kind of a, either way there's going to be criticism, yeah. but, but at least an, ar- an argument could be made that at least you're blameless at least even right. if other people don't i mean you know we're not supposed to do the right thing only when people acknowledge that we're doing the right thing exactly you know? and and so i think we that is a time when we should find joy in that the right thing has happened so 
Uh, here's uh, something from Proverbs uh, 24, verses 24 and 25. Uh, Whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent, will be cursed by, uh, by people and denounced by nations. Uh, but it will go well with those who convict the guilty and rich blessing will come on them. So that's, I like the idea just, you are innocent. It's like, <laughs> hey, uh, I literally still have like blood all over me. It's not mine. <laughs> Well, I know an innocent man when I see one. Uh, and so, um, uh, Psalm 106, uh, Psalm 106 verse three, blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right now. Uh, Hey, yeah, uh, they are blessed because I don't know anybody who always does what is right, but nonetheless, it's, you know, it's a thing we should be striving for. Um, and then here's, uh, here's some, some, uh, Here's some verses regarding very specifically what's going on in Spotlight. So Mark 9, 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. I love that imagery. It's terrible, of course, <laughs> but I love it. Uh, Psalm 146, 9. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. One thing that I do like about that verse is we've been talking about Yes, this is a film about like horrible crimes committed against children, but we are also talking about this this concept to use another buzzword, the the otherness, you know, whether it be of, you know, this Jewish guy or the Armenian guy or this woman and just feeling like being on the outside. And what's more is the the characters within the church that are looking to just save their own skins, they're using these other the, these people's otherness as a reason, as, as a way to dismiss them. Meanwhile, here it says the Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless. Like mm. literally everything, because they're so concerned with their image and maybe, and I would also say, you know, maintaining their power and their standing because they're so focused on this, like they're losing sight of so many other things. Um, and so Isaiah one verse 17, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Uh, take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And it just seems... So, so many of these verses I read and I get a little bit frustrated because they're just so black and white. Mm -hmm. Of course, many of them are not. But when it comes down to just... And uh, I'll, I'll read this actually. So this is Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with uh, calves a year old? Will the <laughs> I'm now thinking of calves like on your leg. <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. I'll go back. <clears throat> shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Offerings with calves a year old. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O, he has shown you, o mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So, <clears throat> justice, mercy, humility, none of these things... And again, like, and I'm, I'm reluctant to talk about the Catholic church now, but in the, in the story of spotlight, none of that is what the church is, is focused on at all. They might appear that way. 
And they might even, to a certain extent, have a heart for certain things. But when you're literally ignoring the victimization of the most vulnerable people in your congregation, and then when somebody else comes after you for, for ignoring that, um, you will then inst- instead go after them. Like that is that is the exact opposite of what we should be doing, and so, you know, and and it's it's tough because I don't want to I don't want to come off like self righteous. We all have our thing. We all have the thing. It's like we we don't want people to know, or if somebody if somebody if a friend of ours did this thing, we don't want people to know because it would make us look bad. I don't. I, admittedly, there are times when I when I don't like the things that I have thought like from a, from a depression standpoint, I get so uncomfortable with them. And there are times when I wish that that when I feel like maybe I should take down my testimony because that was given right in the midst of my depression. And it shows like, I feel, I sound like I just got out of prison and I'm about to go back. Um, and I feel like that can't be doing anybody any good. In fact, it probably, you know, considering how joyful we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to supposed to get our identity in the, in the Lord, like, that can't be doing anybody any good. It might, if anything, I feel like it diminishes God and the power of God. Uh, so I still feel this thing. I feel this instinct of, okay, we just need to, I'm, I should just delete. If I delete that episode, problem solved. No one will hear it ever again. I have that power. Um, but that is not what we're called to do. We're called to boast about our weaknesses and we're supposed to, in the case of justice or injustice being done to other people, it is our job to, to call that out where, where we see it and to do something about it. Maybe we can't step in and like physically defend somebody, but if, and if it's something that happens after the fact, we still have a choice of what we can do. Um, and in the end, so I, I said this at the international Christian film festival, uh, when I was presenting for best screenplay and it came about from a conversation that I had had with the aforementioned Jason Eakin that, the thing that gets me, the thing that bothers me about Christian film, there's a lot, but the thing that bothers me about the attitude behind Christian film is it's all about excuses. It's, it's yes, this movie, look, this movie's not great, but, and the but is usually, it has its heart in the right place, or it could be something like, but the budget wasn't very high, or, you know, but hey, we're not Hollywood, or whatever it is, and they're always making excuses for why, they, they'll acknowledge that the film isn't very good, but then they'll try to say, but that's okay, here's why, and one thing I say is like, we're supposed to make better films, not make excuses, and in the same, and we're not, we're not supposed to make excuses in our everyday life, why would, why is this okay, and that's, and that comes from a, a place that I think is true, like, if there are conse- if if we do something wrong, then there are consequences to be paid. Then so be it. But but like one option is not making excuses or acting like it didn't happen or acting like everything is just fine. Like there's no biblical model for that, um, and we're forgiven anyway. Now, of course, we not we might not be forgiven by the world. There might be again, there might be consequences, even legal consequences. But we are forgiven by this thing and we might even be more actively for, uh, uh, pursuing that forgiveness if we're more, more open about what we did as opposed to so shamefully hiding it that maybe I know that I myself when I when I've done some rough stuff I'm reluctant to pray mm. but then if I tell somebody else they'll be like well the first thing we got to do is pray you know it's just 
you made it you made a sound like is that a is that something you recognize in yourself or have you simply heard that about other people no i think uh, i i was just agreeing with the sentiment of like feeling like you want to step away from yeah from uh faith when you don't feel worthy of it or something yeah i think that's that's a very natural yeah. response but it is the most destructive response at the same time yeah. because that's the thing is wh- usually when that happens and i don't pray and i don't read my bible and i just feel like like either i'm not worthy of god or i just don't want his eyes on me uh that's usually when it's easy for me to do the exact same thing again yeah. often many times yeah. um and so you know it's it's hard to know how to wrap up this episode except to say that like whatever it is you've whatever it is you might have done you might feel this instinct to kind of circle the wagons for lack of a better term and just sort of protect yourself before everything else uh and just pull away from other people at the very least i'm never going to tell anyone anything about i'm not going to tell anyone about this this one thing or this these two things i'm never going to tell anybody about that uh meanwhile that is not that's not biblical and also you're probably making it much much worse for yourself so you know confession is the first step towards forgiveness so like you know confess it to a a loved one uh confess it to god and then ask for forgiveness and then if there's something that needs to be done uh logistically then i'd say do that and then just keep moving under and understanding that you're not going to be perfect and that's okay. And yes, other people might get, other people might uh, get frustrated at that. They might think like, "Well, hey, you're supposed to be a Christian, aren't you supposed to?" Yeah, we are supposed to. We're supposed to do things right, but we often don't. If we if we actually did, then forgiveness would be uh, a, a pretty empty gift. But anyway, so I think we will move on, uh, listeners. I know this kind of bounced around all over the place, so. Um, if you need any clarification, uh, feel free to email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com, or Josh, Josh, at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at More Lessons. You can follow Josh. At the Josh Long. At the Josh Long. You can also like us on Facebook. And I think that is about it. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And by the way, do go see Spotlight. I know we've ruined a lot of it, a lot of it here, or spoiled it, but, you know, it's all a matter of public record at this point. Um but if you have the opportunity, go see Spotlight. I'm a big fan of it. I think it's really great. And go see Doubt while I'm at it. Uh, so, okay. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.